This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a project funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation and hosted by Northeastern University. Sacred Rights is a project that supports public scholarship on religion and provides resources and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website at sacred-rights.org or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden, and this is a podcast where, since 2017, I discuss all things religion with a variety of fantastic scholars, experts, authors, and educators. On this episode, my guest is Dr. Orit Avishai. Orit Avishai is an ethnographer at Fordham University, where she teaches in the sociology department and in the program on women's, gender, and sexuality studies. Her work considers how ideology and culture, broadly defined, shape social institutions, identities, political dialogue, and cultural practices. Her recent work has focused on Jewish orthodoxy, and we discuss her book, Queer Judaism, LGBT Activism, and the Remaking of Jewish Orthodoxy in Israel from NYU Press. We discuss the origin of the book, the research process, and many details about the Orthodox LGBT community in Israel. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Orit Avishai. Dr. Orit Avishai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. I am delighted that you're here. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. Okay. So I'm a professor of sociology and women's gender and sexuality studies at Fordham University in New York. Fordham University is a Catholic Jesuit university, but it also have a center for Jewish studies with which I'm affiliated. And this is all a mouthful, but what it really means is that I was trained as a sociologist, but I don't really care for these um, um, titles. And I'm an <laughs> interdisciplinary scholar that kind of finds interesting um, problems and um, things in the world and goes out and studies them. Um, so I've done a variety of different projects on um, religion, but also other things like I studied the marriage movement in the U.S. and breastfeeding culture. But really the mainstay of my work over about two decades now has been Orthodox Judaism and then specifically in Israel. Wonderful. Well, I want to know a lot about your backstory, too, because I, I was looking at your bio from the Sacred Rights website, and I see that you have a law degree from Tel Aviv University, a law degree from Yale, that you worked in the Israeli Supreme Court, that you've been a lawyer, and that you went on to become an ethnographer in sociology. So 
Can you just kind of tell me a little bit about that path throughout these various educational opportunities and also these different professional paths that you follow? Because I find this to be such a fascinating journey that I want to know a little bit more. So, yeah, I started out um, in the law thinking that I was actually very early on. I knew that I wanted to be a professor, but I wanted to be um, a professor in a law school. So I was at Tel Aviv University. Um, initially, um, and I clerked indeed in the Israeli Supreme Court, and then I went on um, the path <laughs> um, <laughs> that that many many of us uh, followed uh, to uh, Yale Law School to get you know thinking that I would get the PhD equivalent in law, and then while writing my proposal, I realized that everything I was reading and the kinds of questions that were interesting to me weren't really about the law as such, but the law as it intersected with politics, with culture, with society. In retrospect, I don't know if it was a great decision because of the route to a PhD equivalent in law is three to four years. It took me 10. Wow. <laughs> Theology. I had a couple of kids um, in the process, <laughs> but I really wanted to pursue sociology. And at the time, it wasn't just any old sociology. I wanted to go to sociology at the University of California at Berkeley uh, because it was at the time the place to do qualitative feminist sociological research. Mm -hmm. So that's the long route. Um, 2020 hindsight, um, it's been an interesting career trajectory, um, but definitely a risky one. I want to know about your book. Let's talk about this book. You have a, a book that came out just recently. When was the release date of your of your new book? March 28th, 2023. Fabulous. Well, this book, I've been reading it and I am loving it. Queer Judaism, LGBT Activism, and the Remaking of Jewish Orthodoxy in Israel out from New York University Press. I have featured so many of their books over the years, and I absolutely love what that publisher does. Um, so I was delighted to see that they were your publisher. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the origin of this book, this project. Tell me back to the beginning when you kind of like start to started to formulate this in your head. Okay, so um, one thing to note, the uh, publication date is March 2023. I started working on the project, like really working on it in May of uh, 2016. So mm -hmm. it took a while, um, but it actually has several origin stories. Um, and, you know, before I do that, I just want to um, um, make this clear. I'm an outsider to both the communities I studied. Mm -hmm. So this is about LGBT, Orthodox LGBT activism in Israel. So what I do have in common with them is that I am originally from Israel and I'm a native speaker of Hebrew, but I was raised secular. Um, I would say like I'm sort of almost in a sort of, I'm culturally Jewish, but never practiced. And I do not identify as queer, though I'm certainly an ally. So that's important um, to kind of set the stage. And the project had several origin stories so one is sort of the research trajectory that I've been on since graduate school. Somehow I became this expert on religion, gender, sexuality, and Orthodox Judaism. Um, my doctoral dissertation was about Jewish practices of menstrual purity um, called Nida. We're not going to talk about that. But mm -hmm. what, what these practices do is uh, create um, a system that regulates sexuality for Orthodox Jewish heterosexual couples. So I really became fascinated with this area of sexuality and religion and the regulation of sexuality. So that's one origin story. 
Our second origin story is that I just had um, a growing intellectual interest in all things religion, gender, sexuality more broadly. So I've been teaching course, a course, sort of a seminar on this topic, which uh, was very successful. Many students were very interested in it. And when you teach a course of that nature, you're just going to get a lot of students who identify as queer or are questioning. And I also teach other courses. So actually that gets me into the third origin story. But the point of it was just, I was reading a lot. I was reading a lot and I was kind of seeing that lots of things were bubbling up and happening in many different re religious traditions. So then the final push came from my students who were taking these courses in a Catholic Jesuit university in New York. Mm. Most of them are Catholic. Not all of our students are Catholic, but many of them are. And lo and behold, they were, you know, the students who were questioning or had, were already identified as LGBTQ had all sorts of questions about these sort of the meeting point. And often students come to talk to professors who they recognize as allies. And I just became interested in the in the experiences of what these regulations that I would talk about earlier do in actual, you know, for, for people in people's lives. Um, so somehow all these threads came together. And um, when I had a sabbatical in the academic year 2016-2017, I was able to go to Israel to, to do this research. That's the origin backstory. Wonderful. Tell me about the trip and like in the, you know, going to Israel and like finding participants. I'm just curious like about how the, the methodology kind of came together. So I was shocked at how easy it was. I thought it was going to be an uphill battle. I told you I'm an outsider, but two things. First, I, I like in pre-internet era, I, I, you know, it would have been much harder, right? I mean, finding people, you know, in the internet era is kind of easy or at least um, starting points. That's one. Two, I came in at a very opportune time for the movement that I was studying, the Orthodox Jewish LGBT activist. I had no idea. I had no idea. I kind of walked into this project without much prior knowledge, which has its um, advantages and drawbacks. But a so a, there were a lot of people who were out and who had left a very, very long digital trail. So there was a lot to start with. And B, they wanted people to tell their story. What we do in this kind of ethnographic research in general, and especially with more marginalized, vulnerable communities, is you find starting points. You start with people who are easy to track down and who want to talk to you. And then you go on, we call it snowballing, right? And from there, so they, um, so that the people that I met advertised on my behalf in all sorts of closed WhatsApp groups, uh, closed Facebook groups, spaces that I couldn't enter. But whoa, like I would just get text messages. So on WhatsApp, WhatsApp is the is 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 yeah. the way to go um, um, in many parts of the world, including in Israel. People will just write to me. Hi, I got your name from, you know, from Moshe. I got your um, from your your number from my friend Tamar. She told me that, you know, you're looking for interviewees. So that was shocking given the subject matter. I also had people who people who were not out, people who um, wanted to maintain complete anonymity would call me like and sometimes like I'd be driving on the highway and be like, Hi, this is Yossi. Do you want to hear my story? And I'd be like, oh, <laughs> you know, I'm driving. Um, so <laughs> 
it was fascinating in that way, the, the actual research process, sort of the, in the way it unfolded. Um, and then, you know, I did a lot of ethnography, meaning that I went to a lot of spaces. So some of them are public, you know, I went to synagogues that are LGBT affiliated or adjacent or affirming. So that's a public space. You can just walk in. Other public spaces are actually digital. Sometimes, you, you know, you have to request access. And then some spaces I just couldn't get access to. And that, yeah. and that had to be fine, you know, and then people would tell me about them. Mm. You know, I'm wondering, let's talk a little bit about why it's important that the book is about Orthodox Jewish LGBT people. Tell me about the importance of Orthodox and that group within this particular topic about queer Judaism and LGBT activism. Tell me about why, why Orthodox matters. It matters from both, you know, we have, we have the Orthodox and we have the LGBTQ or queer, right? So it matters because there's plenty of research, there's plenty of writing, there's plenty of books about LGBTQ activism, right? And in some ways, the experiences of not just Orthodox Jewish, but religious or, you know, queer people of faith, um, let's say, is and, and queer people of faith who belong to what I think of as conservative sort of small c religious communities that have a lot of biases that are generally speaking, really generally speaking, quite homophobic, quite transphobic. And of course, this transphobia and homophobia is traced back to sacred texts, right? Um, so there's a lot of, so in, in some ways, so LGBTQ people of faith um, confront some of the same issues that all uh, uh, queer folks um, confront. Biases, um, stereotypes, uh, this idea, criminalization, pathology, the pathologization, mm -hmm. um, this idea that associates sort of gen, you know, sort of non-conforming gender and sexual identities and practices and behaviors and desires as deviant, as non-normative. But when you add religious religion into it, it just becomes accelerated. There's also the social and communal issues. And this is especially true for Orthodox Judaism, where families tend to be very large and close-knit. And there's kind of the path to normative adulthood passes through marriage. And by that, I mean heterosexual marriage. That story of the experience of what it means to be a religious person of faith has some unique qualities to it. Uh, the, the liberal community within Judaism, so two things. In Israel, I, very, very small, important, important and existent, but very, very small. And B, the, the story, the gist of the story of both making social change and the personal negotiation is within more conservative religious communities. Um, so that's what drew me into that story. Wonderful. Well, you know, I'm looking at this book and it has a lot of new stuff that I've never really discussed before on the show. I've never heard about before. You have a fantastic glossary of terms right off the bat to familiarize readers with the a wide array of organizations and groups. Um, and I want to give you the chance to like, you know, describe some of the most important groups doing activist work within the LGBT Orthodox communities of Israel. Like who are some like important must know organizations that you found that you think are worth highlighting? 
Yeah, I mean, the glossary had to be there because I'm writing, you know, all these terms and just talking about um, issues that you can't, right, it's even hard to pronounce them. So it felt like I needed to give my sort of readers a map to go back to. So the, like, hands down, the two most important organizations are Bat Kol um, is one, and the other is Havruta. The first is an orthodox queer women's organization, and the other is an orthodox queer men's organization. Uh, fun fact, I'm using the term queer because that's what they call themselves now, but this is actually really recent. Um, but Kol, the women's organization, was founded in 2005. Its name literally means the voice of God. And like many other lesbian and feminist organizations, probably since its founding, there were, there were a lot of debates of what the actual name sh should be and who should be included under its auspices, right? Is it only lesbian women? Is it also bisexual? What about trans women? What about non-binary? It finally, into, in 20, uh, 2021, they finally shifted their um, official name to, to um, include queer. And the men's on the men's side, the organization was founded in 2007, actually with the help of a general, and by that I mean non-Orthodox LGBTQ organization, um, the Jerusalem Open House, and its name refers to the practice of Jewish learning, um, which is typically conducted in pairs, that's the Havuta. And the practice has sort of a deeper layer of meaning. It alludes to a sage's observation that ju juxtaposes human sociability and life with loneliness and death, which is what Chavruta members kind of claim, that by coming together as a Chavruta, they're, they're learning together, but what they're learning here is how to be Orthodox and gay. Um, they went through the same trajectory of kind of negotiating, debating um, their um, name. And just in July 2022, so that I was working on the copy edits of the book, I had to kind of <laughs> this um, tidbit that they were um, working towards changing their name to a more inclusive queer. So this is the LGBTQ activism on steroids, right? Mm. All this is happening within like a decade, a decade and a half. Yeah, and it's like changing in real time, like yeah. in the com in the time since the book came out until today, which is only like weeks ago. I'm sure that brand new things have happened, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know. It's like you finish a book and it's published, and you kind of want to move on, but you, you know, but then you go and give talks, and people ask you about what's going on now, and it really is irresponsible not to have good answers. I just have had that happen last week, so I'm out of the field in the sense that I'm not no longer kind of uh, obsessively following um, breaking stories, but I'm definitely still in the field because like it's done, like there is a book but it's never really done because life goes on. I joked, but only half joked um, that there was an advantage to taking such a long time with the book because I could really watch processes unfold. And, you know, there were interviewees, especially central activists that I interviewed officially several times and then came, had contact with them multiple times over text, or I would see them at events. Um, so there, there was a lot of um, kind of there, there was this ability to to track and follow the um, organizations and the movement as it unfolded over a period of several years. That was not my original intention at all. Yeah. Well, OK, so we have these groups uh, that you just overviewed very nicely. And then we also have the importance of the political reality and the ways that the parties 
are involved with what is going on with regards to LGBT rights within the country. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about who the important political parties are here that are maybe fighting against inclusion of LGBT Orthodox people, like how powerful they are. What do we need to know about the political reality on the ground? Right. So I talked about a couple of um, Orthodox LGBTQ activist organizations. There are others, and they all come together under this umbrella organ, not really organization, this umbrella network that's called the Proud Religious Community. And the proud religious community has, you know, if we're going to identify one foe, um, they would be under the umbrella of conservative, and this is with a small c, orthodox and ultra-orthodox parties, politicians, establishment folks, rabbis, and sometimes entire um, religious communities. Um, And one of the fascinating developments, really, of the starting, let's say, in the latter half of the 2010s, is the emergence of the LGBTQ issue or as a central point in, in sort of in the political realm, much of like what we've seen in the U.S., except for that this is happening within the Orthodox Jewish community, which is very, very um, strong politically um, in Israel. So this matters, this has implications for national sort of political debates. So, you know, if I had to point to like the, it's not even the number one, but it's, it's, it's the most audible and visible nemesis is this party that was established in 2019 by, um, uh, a very, very conservative Orthodox rabbi and others in his um, circle, although it had other precedents. And the name of this party is Noam, which in Hebrew means pleasant, but they're really not very pleasant people. Um, it's an uber conservative, homophobic, transphobic, anti-feminist, very, very nationalist party. It kind of like its its reason for being almost is this protecting the family, protecting normalcy, protecting the nation. Many of the slogans of this party um, include references to family, normalcy, and nation, which they see as being under siege from a bunch of like others. Like they produce this these videos, and these others are like really comically portrayed. So, reform Jews. Um, secular Jews, definitely non-Jews, feminists, um, and then LGBTQ persons. And the number one enemy that they see for normalcy and for the viability of the Jewish nation are Orthodox Jewish LGBTQ people and their allies. Um, It's blatant. It's out there. When this party began, it was kind of a curiosity and people laughed about it and laughed it away, except that within a, like four, less than four years, now they their representative is a member of the Knesset, that would be the Israeli parliament, and has authority within the um, education ministry, this Parliament member is a representative is, is heading a really dystopian sounding um, authority for national Jewish identity. Um, so he now oversees the educational the education ministry's external educational founding funding, and he has vowed basically to um, defund any organization that um, 
supports or includes or uh, uh, visibility for non-normative families or non-normative sexual and gender identities. The politics of this is intense and basically at the national level. Um, gotcha. And it is all being waged on the backs of individuals. Uh, that's kind of the impression I was getting from reading that chapter as well. You know, something else I, I really found inspiring, though, in your book is even with the political uh, challenges, the you, you say the last 20 years have been remarkable, pivotal, game-changing for LGBT Orthodox people in Israel. And you know, the the opening chapter discusses the power of the anonymous chat room, which you were kind of talking about earlier with the very online uh, digital trails that helped get these conversations started. And you've you've kind of given some some timeline of events um, in the past few minutes here. But I'm wondering if there's any like super crucial moments that have occurred that are key to understanding the development of this um, LGBT Orthodox activism over the last couple of decades that you think that everybody should know about? Are there like key events in the story here that everybody should know about? Yeah. So yes, the internet, right? The early chat rooms, we're talking late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, that was a sort of a pivotal moment era. And again, this is, I'm, I'm talking specifically about uh, this group, but that that's true for many, many um oppressed, marginalized groups because, and especially LGBTQ uh, people, because how, how, how do you, how do you find other people, right? In communities that um, silence, that deny the existence of homosexuality in, in their communities, how are you going to find other people like you where there's no public visibility, right? There, there are no same-sex couples in your synagogue. There is no questioning kid in your 10th grade chemistry class. They just don't exist as far as you know. You are the only one. You don't even have a name for anything. Mm -hmm. So the chat, so so the early days of the internet, and I'm talking sort of modem dial-up and very, very archaic um, chat rooms. Uh, was really the birth of this movement because people could find other people, they could develop a language. As often happens, they moved from the offline to the online world. And that's how I discussed, I talked about uh, Havuta earlier, um, the gay men's um, organization. Well, the founders, the, the co-founders met, some of them met through these um, um, back channels, through these chat rooms. So that's that's sort of one pivotal moment. The second one is the mid to late um, 2000s, where this kind of bubbling energy where two people here and three people there and five people there kind of came together and said, you know what? We need to have organization. We need to be out there. We need to have a website so that when people Google, I don't know if they were Googling, but you know, when, when people look for um, Orthodox, um, Jewish, gay, is it possible? They don't just get hits, you know, with uh, a reference, you know, that send them to um, conversion therapy or organizations or some hateful uh, material, but they find us and they know that we exist, that they can talk to us. So that would be the late and a lot of things happened. I was when I put it all together and realized how many initiatives and organizations began in like between 2005, 2006 and 2009. 
The third pivotal moment, I would say, was um, the um, Jerusalem Pride Parade, which official name is uh, the Jerusalem Parade for Tolerance, something of that sort. So it's not really officially a Pride Parade. Um, in 2015, when an ultra-Orthodox man uh, went on a stabbing rampage, mm hurt several people and a young teenager, a 16 year old uh, girl died from her wounds. And that was a moment of reckoning. So the organizations and the movement had been working towards acceptance, had been doing a lot of work within their communities, uh, work with rabbis. But when this happened in 2015, there was an impromptu rally that evening. Uh, where a very, very influential liberal, liberal but orthodox rabbi spoke. And then a couple of days later, there was a more organized kind of rally. And people said to me, well, after that, there was no sitting on the fence. You couldn't say, oh, well, it's complicated. Like you were either with us or without us. So that was July or August, um, summer 2015. And things rapidly unfolded in terms of public visibility, in terms of outreach, in terms of community involvement and realization that you can't talk and spread out sort of vile and expect anything less than violence. So there was a lot of um, soul searching after that. So I would say um, these are kind of three pivotal moments. I came in, again, I did not really know this, but when I started it was really um, still in the aftermath of this stabbing and death and violence and the soul searching and willingness to convert converse that. Yeah. You brought up the rabbis a minute ago. How are the rabbis doing with all this rapid change in the country in the last couple of decades? So, well, it depends who they are. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of sometimes I talk about the rabbis as one thing, but they're they're not one thing. There is, you know, they're a mixed bunch. There is sort of the more conservative folks, um, like I talked about Noam earlier, um, but there are a lot of other kinds of, uh, there, there are many other groups and um, um, strands of conservative uh, circles within orthodoxy. With the conservative rabbis, there's no real dialogue. There's no real conversation. Um, they're actually, they serve as, as excellent foils for um, witty responses, for uh, press releases, for sometimes kind of guerrilla action, sort of protesting outside some synagogue or taking out ads in newspapers and, uh, you know, obviously sort of viral uh, social media campaigns. Those are the, the more conservative that do, like there, there's no chance for dialogue. Um, on the other hand, there's the more mainstream slash liberal rabbis um, and, and increasingly um, a growing circle of allies. Um, I referenced one earlier. I could, you know, should have named him um, Benny Lau, who is um, a very, very active pro progressive, orthodox progressive rabbi um, based in Jerusalem. The folks that I was working with called them our rabbis, right? So one of the questions I learned to ask in interviews, well, you know, who, who are your rabbis? You know, who are the allies? And, you know, different people would give me a different names, and but it, it expanded. It really grew. So now when I read things or when I hear things, I don't recognize all the names of the rabbis who are allied with this community. And one of the brilliant 
tactics that the Orthodox uh, um, Jewish, that Orthodox Jewish uh, activists have utilized is talking and educating their, the rabbis. I had one reader um, who I, I sent various chapters to um, for comments to, you know, colleagues and friends. And I sent this chapter to a very prominent feminist scholar of um, Jewish thought. And she said, you know, the, the, the chapter title is a little offensive. What do you mean they're educating the rabbis? But I was like, no, they're, they're, this is what they're doing. They are educating the rabbis, the ones who they can converse with, about what it means to be an Orthodox Jewish gay person, lesbian person, trans person, etc. They are educating them in the basics of theories of gender and sexuality. They're educating them and they're studying with them, with this, which is a very, very Jewish thing to do. You study texts together, the expert and the student, right? You study texts together um, to figure out what the texts mean, what they could mean, how to adapt them to particular groups, to particular circumstances. Part of a very um, intentional part of the activists' activism has been directed at these potentially potential allies and allies to educate them about um, the lives, the realities, the hardships, the joys of being orthodox and queer. As the uh, the researcher who was, you know, talking to all these groups and learning about all these things going on in Israel, what were some of your favorite initiatives or public outreach campaigns that you learned about? Like, what were some of the things that you loved learning about the most? Wow, there were so many. One of the things that I complained about when I wrote the book, there are so many good stories. <laughs> I think kind of as a, as a broad initiative, my absolute favorite is an organization called Shoval. So this is one of those initiatives that began in the late uh, 2000s. It's an outreach organization that runs, let's say, about two-hour workshops for the general public, for um, communities, for educational staff at Orthodox institutions. That was actually the, the initial um, target audience, uh, groups of therapists and other uh, mental health uh, workers, basically any Orthodox groups that will engage them. So activists at Batkol and Chavruta, this would be, these would be the Orthodox lesbian and gay men's um, organizations realized that they, they were working in, in various uh, ways, sort of they were working to provide support for their community. They were working kind of for about visibility, but they also wanted to have an educational and communal outreach arm and they realized that it needed to be distinct from the work that they were doing um, kind of inward. So they established this organization and they had this crazy idea that they were going to train people from their community, sort of Orthodox Jewish LGBTQ, um, to talk about kind of to first construct and then talk about their experience and go out into the world and meet with Orthodox communities and spaces that would host them and tell them about their lives. Um, now, we know from social justice activism that this is like a very um, powerful tactic, but this would require people to come out publicly again and again and again um, in communities that are sometimes um, unfriendly, um, sometimes hostile, um, and tell their story. 
Um, and it kind of worked, right? The idea was they were not going to battle. They were not going to debate. This is not a debate club. They're not going to debate um, Jewish texts. They're not going to debate Jewish practices. They're just going to come in and tell them, listen, you know, my name is so-and-so. I grew up in this neighborhood. Um, I went to this school. I went to this, this yeshiva. And the idea that the neighborhood and the school and the yeshiva would all be orthodox, like they would know, right? They would name a neighborhood, which is very, very orthodox, right? And the sub subtext there is, I'm one of you. I, you know, I'm your neighbor, I'm your cousin, I'm your, you know, I'm your sister-in-law's friend, right? You know people like me. And then we just tell their story. And, and I realized, right, that they were telling a very orthodox LGBT story. This organization is named Shoval. They they um, they train their volunteers. They have these specialized uh, trainings, maybe every other year, um, and they help people write their Shoval story. I realized at some point that some activists, I just I couldn't interview them because they would say, "Oh, do you want to hear my Shoval story?" And I'd be like, "No, I went to this training and that training. I've already heard you tell your Shoval story. I actually don't want that prepackaged story." But but the prepackaged story kind of became part of their story, right? So I got to go to a lot of these workshops. Now, the people kind of behind the scenes who've sort of founders and people who have worked for the organization say that in the beginning, each booking was like, you know, a success. And now they, they can't meet demand, right? The demand is so big. It's like people know about them. They're um, really everywhere, and a couple of times a year, they're part of broader initiatives. Um, so right now, actually, it's one of them. It's called sort of the Making Space Initiative uh, that runs in conjunction with um, Pesach Shani, so Passover, um, but the second Passover, which is now marks celebrating tolerance with, within Jewish communities. So they organize like dozens of these meetings within the space of a week all over the country. And it's, it's a huge, it's a huge logistical um, success, but it really means that dozens of people are willing to go out there and meet with people in the community and tell them their stories. I love it. You know, you've got an organizational structure running through the book. You call them lines of inquiry. Um, what is What are the three threads that in your view, ties the book together for readers that you purposefully set out to, to achieve? Well, purposefully set out to achieve would um, really miss <laughs> or mask how, act <laughs> how actually, or at least in my experience, books come together, which is you sometimes realize what you're really after only after the fact, right? I mean, these were kind of inquiries I think that I had in the back of my mind, but they didn't fully crystallize until, until I was actually done and putting it all together. And then I realized, oh, right, these are the kinds of questions. So there are three of them. One of them is about how religious traditions, religious stories, religious communities tell their stories and change, right? So like other religious traditions, Jewish orthodoxy kind of asserts itself as a timeless thing, right? Which is, you know, heterosexual, cisgender, social order. But then I got thinking, well, who decides? Like, who is at the table when Orthodox Jews, you know, decide, you know, who, who gets to be um, called an Orthodox Jew and who isn't? Like, 
you know, were non-heterosexual and non-cisgender Orthodox Jews consulted? And the, this is a rhetorical question because of course not. So the line of inquiry became, you know, what does it mean to be Orthodox? Well, yeah, what does it mean to be Orthodox? And can queer folk demand sort of inclusion in this club that is called Orthodox Judaism? Um, so that was sort of one line of inquiry is sort of the construction, the work that goes into maintaining Orthodox Judaism. And of course, I focus on Orthodox Judaism, but this is true for other religious um, communities or religious traditions. The second line of inquiry is about the activism. Like, how do they do this? Like two decades ago, there's no language. I mean, don't like talk about visibility. There is no language for someone to say, hey, I'm Orthodox and LGBTQ, I'm Orthodox and gay, I'm Orthodox and lesbian. So like, how did they do this in 20 years, but really even, even less than that? So here, my analysis first looked at what they did, like how, you know, what, what initiatives, what groups, what organizations um, um, emerged um, from, you know, from a void. Um, and then I looked at the, um, logic and the rhetoric that they and the tactics and the strategies that they used um, in their activism. So kind of a sort of classic social um, activism kind of uh, line of inquiry. And the third line of inquiry is about people's lives, right? So what is the experience? What does it take for LGBTQ people, persons of faith, in this case, for LGBTQ Orthodox Jews to achieve psychological well, well-being, to, to live livable lives under assault, right? Under assault from so many of their co-religionists. And, and here I looked at how religion, you know, is often portrayed um, as a source of conflict, as a source of anguish, as a source of sp spiritual harm for LGBTQ uh, persons of faith. And I kind of saw through my research that religion can also be a source of joy and a source of meaning making. Mm -hmm. It can be play a very powerful role in people's lives. So those three together came kind of to tell sort of the broader story that I was telling here. And I'm kind of trying to tell to tell this all at once about the activism, about livable lives and, you know, what it means to be sort of us. Um, what is, you know, who, who can be part of the group um, and how people whose group membership, let's call it, is questioned um, come to challenge the sort of the rules of inclusion, the result can be um, a much more accepting and, and exciting religious experience, not for just for the marginalized, for but for everyone. Wonderful. What an amazing story of this uh, very special book for this group that's doing so much to create a better future for themselves in their home country. Let's chat about what else you're up to. A little bit. You're a member of Sacred Rights, the 2023 Carpenter cohort. And I'm just wondering how you are enjoying the experience so far of doing trainings in public scholarship and getting your voice out there into the wider world of, uh, of you know, public media. 
it's been a really great experience. You know, we writers and researchers, we kind of sit behind the screen and think with ourselves and it can get very lonely. Um, academics also are notoriously bad writers when it comes to the, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm a good writer, but when it comes to the um, broader sort of writing for the broader public. Um, so being in community um, and hearing other people's thoughts, experiences, strategies to navigate um, sort of the public domain, right? Writing for um, a different kinds of audience that we usually imagine has been very, um, very powerful. Also, it's like, it's great to be a student, you know, I'm usually teaching and I, I got into this business because Ultimately, I was a very good student, so <laughs> really wonderful, kind of to pick up new, new, new tools, right? New, yeah. Wonderful. Well, you know, uh, Dr. Liz Bucar, uh, the the PI on sacred rights, always talks about uh, risks and rewards and responsibilities of public scholarship for academics. What are you seeing as some of those? that you are finding within this process for you? Like, what are your risks working with this topic? What are your rewards that you're getting out of it? And how do you see yourself as somebody bringing forward these stories for the larger public? Well, there's always the risk of doing harm. I mean, one of the reasons it took me such a long time to write the book is to, to make sure that I'm not exposing, naming people who should not be exposed. Um, and I'll say in parentheses, many of my interviews wanted to be named in their full name. So sort of, you know, there's that real sort of big risk. There's also a risk of, I have an anthropologist friend who calls it um, the, the National Geographic moment, right? So turning this into a sensational story of um, sort of of great interest, but that really cheapens um, and especially, um, you know, the, the, the personal experience. So, I, you know, there's, there's always that fear of, of doing more harm than good uh, with both academic writing, definitely with um, public writing. Um, the rewards, I'm, I'm still working through them. Some people really want to be out there in the world. I'm just very happy writing, you know, my books and my articles and having them out there um, and not engaging with all sorts of um, uh, trolls that sometimes find their way into your inbox and elsewhere. So that reward I don't like, but I do find it rewarding when, when people find my work and are moved by it. For example, I did a, a public event just last Thursday at a synagogue in Brooklyn in, where I kind of following this format, someone interviewed me and I got to tell about the book and about the research. And people were very, very thrilled. You know, they came, they they were very interested in what I had to say. Um, so it felt rewarding to be able to bring a lot of the stories alive for people who may not have the time or frankly, the interest to, to read a whole book. And I, I got some nice comments um, sent to me from friends, you know, about, you know, who had read the, the book or parts of it. So that feels very rewarding. The responsibilities. Wow. I mean, especially as a, as an outsider to both communities, they weigh heavily. <laughs> they weigh very, very heavily to really get it right, to not sensationalize, et cetera. 
Wonderful. Do you have any specific goals for yourself, like uh, venues that you'd like to publish in or uh, anything like that that you're really shooting for with regards to getting your work out there for the public? Um, I don't know. Well, the Holy Grail is always um, right. The New York Times or the Washington Post. But I actually recently had a couple of pieces, not directly from this research, it's from new research I'm starting to think about, but within the same um, realm of LGBTQ and Orthodox Jews. Um, about the Yeshiva University case vis-a-vis uh, -vis the um, Pride Club on its campus that it actually won't allow. Um, so I had that in the conversation. I had a piece in Religious Dispatches. Um, so I would love to get more stuff in those actual kinds of publications, but also in Jewish sort of publications. I tried to pitch the pieces that, actually, that eventually became um, the pieces that I published the Jewish um, publications didn't want to touch. Mm. So I, I kind of want to crack that nut. Um, but so that's kind of, that, that's one of the goals. Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what it is that you do. Uh, do you have any uh, places that you would suggest people uh, find you or get in touch if they were wanting to learn more or any things that you would direct people's attention to if they wanted to, uh, to follow up? Um, well, I have those two pieces that I published in the conversation or in, in uh, religious dispatches, and then I have some others that they can find if they Google my name that are open access. Perfect. And they can find me through my Fordham University um, website. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Orit Avishai, I have absolutely loved learning about your book, your research, your very diverse career path that you have traveled. It has been such a pleasure to uh, to learn with you and to learn about everything that inspires you and in your work. Thank you so much for spending all this time with me today. Thank you. This was um, this was an experience. This was uh, very gratifying. I guess this is a reward to be able to talk about my work, um, to condense six years of work into an hour. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs>